I think in particular, when he uses mysticism in a way that I resonate with, it's, again, the ability to think contradiction. It's the ability to think dialectic. It's the ability to recognize there are limits to reason, and yet we often find ourselves operating beyond those limits of, of reason. Meaning the simple fact that we are religious and we do things that are religious, we act in certain ways that like 90% of the time can't be justified, right? Like in any kind of purely rational sense. So if you're able to sit with that awareness and live in that space in which I do things that are true and real, but I can never fully explain, from Shagar, that in a certain sense is like the opening to mystical consciousness, right? And to be able to hold that space is very, very important for Shagar. And the term mysticism becomes one in which we can use to help us hold that, that space. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Over the past few years, I've discovered the thinking and writings of Rabbi Shimon Gershon Rosenberg, better known by his initials, Rav Shagar. The more I've read the many books that have been released after his early passing in 2007 at the age of 57, the more I've been challenged, excited, and inspired by his depth, creativity, and authentic religiosity and spiritual longing. It also seems to me that few people in the English-speaking Orthodox world have much familiarity with Rav Shagar's life-changing ideas. This is a shame, as Rav Shagar, perhaps as much as any other Orthodox thinker over the past 50 years, deals directly with the issues that confront religious Zionism and modern Orthodoxy. Whether we're referring to his definition of truth, challenges to faith, religious pluralism, the impact of fundamentalism, the mystical experience, and so much more, Rav Shagar's voice is one that needs to carry great weight as orthodoxy moves deeper into the 21st century. To that end, I was proud to coordinate a discussion about Rav Shagar with Rabbis Zachary Truboff and Yoshua Engelman, two individuals who have intimate familiarity with Rav Shagar and his unique path in Torah. It's my hope that this episode inspires listeners to learn more about Rav Shagar and to make his thinking a more central part of orthodox discourse throughout the world. Before we begin that conversation, I have a couple of very brief announcements. Please share this podcast, rate The Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts. And let us know what you think on The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for The Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts. And remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, everyone knows that the market for podcasts is growing every day. If Descartes lived today, he'd probably say, I have a podcast, therefore I am. And it's only going to get bigger. If you listen to this podcast, then you definitely have opinions. And if you have opinions or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds or thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast. Contact me at Scott. S-C-O-T-T, at jewishcoffeehouse.com, or go to jchpodcasts.com. That's jchpodcasts.com to learn how we can help you make a high-quality, effective, and entertaining podcast. Zachary Truboff is the Director of Rabbinic Education for the International Beit Din and the author of Torah Goes Forth from Zion, Essays on the Thought of Rav Kook and Rav Shagar. He previously headed the English-speaking program of Tzirufim, a project of Yeshivat Siach Yitzchak. Before making Aliyah, he served for nearly a decade as the rabbi of Cedar sinai Synagogue in Cleveland, Ohio. 
Currently, he lives in Yushalayim with his wife Jen and their four children. Yoshua Engelman studied by Rav Shagar in his early years and was part of a small group of students who met weekly to learn with Rav Shagar. Later, he taught at Hakotel, Otniel, and Siach Yeshivas and was rabbi and director of Yakar Shul in Tel Aviv. He now works as a psychotherapist in Tel Aviv and Yerushalayim. Knowing Rav Shagar continues to inspire his work. Rav Zach Trubov and Rav Yoshua Engelman, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Shalom. Happy to be here. Today we'll be speaking primarily about Rav Shagar's thought and about who he was. And in that sense, I'd like to really start off with each of your connection to Rav Shagar, personal, intellectual, and so forth. So Rav Engelman, could you begin telling us what your connection is to Rav Shagar? So when I first arrived at Yeshivat Kotel, Rav Shagar was attracting the best and most profound Talmudim. Uh, some of them even came from Haredi Yeshivot to hearing Rav Shagar's Shurim Gemara decided that this, it's worth it. I remember someone who was from one of the most famous Haredi uh, Yeshivot said that every Shur of Rav Shagar in Talmud is like his Yeshiva's Shur Klali, weekly Shur. The best Talmudim Yeshiva attracted him. I started hearing his classes in the second or third year. And afterwards, he invited me to join a small group of um, Talmidim, including Rav Fuhrman al Shalom, and Yibadel HaChaim Urkim, Rav Zinger, Rabbi Deutsch, etc., etc., would study with him in his house. This went on for many years, studying with him on Thursday nights. Of course, that maintained a connection, a personal connection, which continued between us until uh, he sadly passed away rather young. Okay, thank you, Rav Engelman. Rav Trubov, how about you? So my connection to Rav Shigar is, is not a personal one. I first encountered his writings when I purchased Kelim Shvurim, which is one of his early, early published books, when I, when I lived in Israel almost uh, two decades ago. Um, to this day, I, I regret that I did not have the chance to hear him, hear him teach in person. And, and my, my connection with him is through his Torah and through the, uh, through the published writings, um, which I started to, to read and to study and to teach after I returned to, to America. And I started over the years to develop a bit of a connection with some of the students who currently are the Ramim, the teachers at Yeshivat Siach. Uh, and after I made Aliyah, I had the chance to help uh, run a program there and do some writing on Rav Shigar's thought and, and have a lot of conversations with the students. And uh, I think for me, in many ways, he has become my primary intellectual inspiration when it comes to questions of Torah, religious Zionism, you know, his Torah is the place that I, I just intuitively find myself going towards. And Yeshiva Tziach is, of course, the Yeshiva that he founded, I believe. I'll ask you, Rav Engelman, because like Rabbi Trubov, I have only an intellectual connection to Rav Shagar, certainly far less than Rav Trubov, but he's someone who's really given me lots of Sipuk HaNefesh, tremendous intellectual nourishment and spiritual nourishment. But I don't know anything really about him on a personal level. Could you maybe tell a story or two before we get into his intellectual biography, perhaps, about what he was like as a person, maybe just so we can know something about him on an individual level? Well, a lot of his... Um... Bio has been written in various books. It's sometimes copied because it's a pretty brief uh, uh, exposition of his personal history, his path. What I could add personally, I'll, I'll say in a very personal level, although my connection with him was went on for many, many years, I felt this seeing more aspects of his warmth, his care, his, I'd say, special, specific brand of being a tzaddik, uh, even more so when I was going through a very hard time and I'd go to talk with him, uh, you know, on Shabbatot after davening, Vatikin he used to go with, go for Kiddush. And it was then I think I, I, I felt, probably because of my need, how he was able 
to do what I think uh, teachers, mentors, or Sadiqim, in fact, and I use this word with great caution, I call them to do, meaning to provide a place for other people, a place which is personal for them, for which they can see the world or their lives differently. So I experienced that warmth. I also experienced his humor and various aspects of his character. In our Thursday night meetings, of course, there'd be not just serious in-depth learning, there'd be uh, humor, there'd be jokes, there'd be uh, sometimes at his expense, as it should be with, between close students and teachers. And he was always uh, interested in developing more in various directions, whether we decided as a group to do a drama class in order to discover ourselves and him to discover himself more, various other directions. In other words, I think that he really was able to facilitate and empower people to do what we're all called on to do in life, which is to experiment. You know, that's what the meaning of uh, regression in a psychoanalytical point of view means. It means to be able to go back to the age of two or three where we aren't afraid to try everything with the hope, uh, our parents hope usually, that we won't kill ourselves in the process, whether it's eating dirt or anything we're trying. And that's what life is supposed to be, experimenting and trying various new directions. And you really empower people personally in that way too. Yeah, I just want to add one thing. I, again, I did not know Rav Shigar personally, but I've spent a lot of time talking to you know students older and younger about their relationship with him. And I also have a friend who's been collecting stories from many, many different people who knew Rav Shigar. And one thing I, I appreciate that comes through when I talk to his students is the way in which Rav Shigar was complicated um, and that Rav Shigar did not hide the fact he was complicated. And he did not hide the fact that his life, his personality, his commitments had contradictions in them. Um, and the fact he could wear that openly uh, is something truly profound because most tzaddikim, you know, these people who get that title are most Rosh Yeshiva, right? Their job is to hide those contradictions as much as possible to present an ideal. Uh, and the, the fact that Rosh could embrace those contradictions and show that life was complicated and that there are many times difficult questions don't have answers. Um, it can make things difficult, but there is something, at least for me, truly, truly refreshing to encounter uh, a religious leader, thinker who's able to do that. I agree entirely with Rabbi Zach. I'd, I'd also add, uh, when I was not yet 20, a very famous Rosh Hashim in Jerusalem advised me to go to Rav Shagar's shirim, saying that Rav Shagar wasn't yet 30 then, comparing him in depth to Rav Soloveitchik, and I don't think he was off the mark. And in personal ways, I remember just a very small vignette when once I was uh, maybe in my early 20s, and he came over to me, asked me if I'd like to go on a certain shidduch, which his wife wanted to suggest. And I said to him, do you think it's uh, timely for me yet? Maybe it's, uh, I don't need to go do that yet. And he, in inimitable way, said, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe you don't need to do that yet. Like within one sentence, suggesting doing A, but opening the possibility to doing the other. And it was obviously very clear to those who asked the advice that whether he said, I think you should do A, or whether he was opening possibilities, he was completely uh, open to doing the opposite and not thinking that if he thought that A, one path was the best way, that would be right. Uh, completely opening possibilities. There's so much in what you both said now that I want to explore as we go on today. One of them is this idea of experimentation that Rev Engelman mentioned, or the contradictions perhaps in his personality that Rev Trubuff mentioned. Because when I read the essays of Rav Shagar, I see ideas that come from all over, everything from Kant to The Matrix. 
And I'm curious if you can each comment perhaps on what you think are some of the primary influences that affected him in an intellectual way, both in the Jewish world and beyond. You know, one of the things that, you know, we, we know Rav Shagar, at least for those of us who do not know him personally or as a Rosh Yeshiva, we know Rav Shagar as a, as a religious thinker, as somebody who, you know, taught Nachshavet Yisrael. Um, there's an irony there in that Rav Shagar did not, at least from what I've been told, did not primarily see himself as a thinker. He saw himself as a Rosh Yeshiva who gave a Gemara Shir, as Rabbi Engelman pointed out. That was really the core of, of what he did and, and, and his identity as a teacher of, of Torah. And in the context of teaching Gemara, right, again, what marked him was his ability to draw upon different ways of approaching the Gemara, whether it's traditional or a little bit more historical, critical, or more existential or more creative or more literary, and try to show how each of these, you know, shows something essential about the text and how they can potentially be woven together uh, to uh, find truth in, 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 in Torah. Um, and I think that same thing applies, that same approach applies to what we associate it with his, you know, machshava, which is with his, uh, with his uh, engagement with Jewish thought. I tend to see him as somebody who is animated more by questions and ideas than I have than certain commitments to a specific thinker, and therefore I have to work out exactly what that thinker uh, thinks. Um, I tend to, to characterize his thought as drashot, and I mean that in the best possible way because what drashot do is they take Torah. And they connect it to the reality of, of life. Right? It has to. It makes Torah real. That's what Rishon do. Rav Shagar would often cite this idea that Torah Emet has to be a Torah Chaim in order to be a Torah Emet. Right? A Torah of truth has to be a living Torah in order to be uh, true. So even though he is drawing on all of these influences, right? His primary interest is Torah. Um, it's always Torah, and that there's a truth to Torah that we have to find and make and make real. Um, he recognized the way that different Jewish thinkers, different uh, secular thinkers can help us understand that. But to this day, I, I feel very strongly Rav Shagar was not a philosopher. Um, it began with Torah and it ended with Torah with him. It's just that uh, secular philosophy, postmodernism, poststructuralism offers an angle to think about certain questions and think about certain ideas that can deeply enrich our thinking. And again, he's a religious Zionist. The Zionist part means he's also modern. He has a foot in that world. He thinks with that hat on, so to speak. Um, so for him, that just became a part of how he was going to approach Torah. I agree with Rabbi Trubov. Certainly his main occupation, even when he was very uh, profoundly teaching and dealing in mysticism, whether it's through uh, early medieval texts, whether it's through Kabbalah, whether it's Hasidut, and he studied Kabbalah in his youth with great masters, the main a proportion of his time he would spend preparing his shiurim in Gemara. And I definitely agree that from the early years, it was always a question of making things real. I remember him teaching Baba Kama and really getting into the, the almost the experience of the chicken uh, throwing around stones or stuff like that, really living it. In other words, it had to be real, not just real on an intellectual level or on an emotional level, but really feeling the realness of this. And Together with that, that also means being real means being aware of one's contradictions. In other words, uh, a true person is full of contradictions, whether it's Yetzirah, Tov, Yetzirah, body and soul, etc., etc. That's the essence of a human being, being conflicted. And so Rav Shagar was certainly a conflicted person. A conflicted person is a rich person, is an emotionally and intellectually rich person, and certainly making things very real. I would add another aspect, which... I don't think has been formulated enough, although it's been expressed in various ways, in which Rav Shagar, to my mind, was uh, 
outstanding, and that is imagination. In other words, uh, the ability to imagine another person's life, another experience, another way of seeing things, not just view it, but actually imagine it, is, I'd say, the essence of compassion, is the essence of humanity. So when people were talking to him about personal problems, he'd be really, you could see he was really imagining. I remember him once saying to us, uh, maybe I must have been about 19 then, and he was saying to a few of us, you know, someone who learns how to read Mara will know how to read and listen to other people. And he said this example, usually when someone said, says to you, I was going somewhere and a dog jumped on me and I was afraid, most people register the word fear. They won't bother to imagine what that experience of fear was for the other person. And that's an effort. Imagination means effort, really trying to imagine. So it's whether learning a sugya or whether learning, you know, Jewish philosophers, you have to use your imagination. You have to try to really see it in terms of Rabbi Trubov mentioned as real. And that came to uh, the fore often when people consulted him with problems because he didn't just listen to the words, but he imagined what they were going through and could experience. And that's the way people felt that his listening was very, very profound. And I think that's a very important essence of his teaching was this ability to listen, to listen even to an extent that it can become quite mystical. So speaking of mysticism in that sense, and Rav Engelman, you talked about his relationship with Kabbalah and Hasidut. I want to ask a little bit about what that was for him. Obviously, it was a centerpiece of his general thought. He has, or at least we have now, books of his shiurim on Likutei Moharan by Rabbi Nachman of Breslov on the Balatanya, as well as in almost every essay, there's some reference to either Shvirat Kelim, the breaking of the vessels, or other Kabbalistic ideas, the dialectical tension between Chachma and Keter, etc., etc. So... This is sort of an open-ended question because I'm not sure there's a proper answer, but was he a Kabbalist? Was he a Hasid? Or were these ideas that fed his thought and he was able to use them in certain ways, but he wouldn't be classified in those typical categorizations? First of all, of course, classification is always problematic. I certainly agree with uh, that his uh, teachings were a certain type of drashot, not trying to create a system of thought. However, various uh, academics have Peruz analyzed his thought before he passed away, and certainly since. Uh, Rabbi Tamar Breno teaches in his yeshiva and other places, has written an interesting article about mysticism as it developed through his thought. Mysticism, as he describes it in a rather day-to-day way. Now, there's whether in a, the period when he was speaking in existential terms, and he obviously had a very healthy and necessary skepticism of false mysticism. And whether in later years, when he also talked about various popular forms of mysticism, whether it's New Age or whether it's expressions of these things in science fiction and other forms of understanding, but seeing and expressing the mystical aspects of reality of being, as these are open not only to a certain elite who work excruciatingly hard, whether for years or decades, whether in Jewish paths or other ways, but actually the possibility of ordinary people, lay people, experiencing the mystical sense in its various forms, because there's not just one way of experiencing mysticism, experiences in its, in its various forms through everyday practice, through the keeping of halakha, through the Jewish experience, through the experience of, of home and of covenant and of wit, but all these, I think, very much infused his thought, whether directly or indirectly. And he certainly wrote about this directly as 
not just a personal option, and he says in various places that there can't be any true religion without the kernel of mystical experience, which is said quite emphatically in various times in his life, early years and late years, but these being as an option for people, for peoplehood, for Am Yisrael, and for a certain type of utopian state, not an abstract utopian state, but a very real type of modern orthodoxy and Zionism, which is not abs is not does not absent itself from a certain uh, mysticism, which is also a touch with the unknown, which is a touch with the numinous, which is a touch with very uh, expressions. Now, some would say, was he a mystic or not? That depends on one's definition, but certainly he had and expressed and shared with us some mystical experiences. And it was certainly very uh, powerful in his thought. Rabbi Trubov, do you want to add anything to that? Look, the, the term mysticism in Rav Shagar's thought is a very complicated term. And as Rav Engelman pointed out, like where and when and how it's used is sort of open for, um, for, for debate and for uh, discussion. Um, one thing that's clear about Rav Shagar is he does have a sense of historical consciousness. He recognizes the way in which he as a modern person is at a distance from certain ideas and beliefs that people in previous generations would not have necessarily been at a distance from. So when he talks about Hasidut, like he's very much aware that as a religious Zionist, um, it's not just that you can just go become Hasidim, right? Like that that's not really an option. And that if religious Zionists are going to take on Hasidut, uh, both the thought, the teachings or the practices, it's going on a certain level to be something different. So I think that's important that he, he recognizes where he is um, and what's possible and what's not. And he is very concerned that religious thinking doesn't just become fantasy, fantasies. For all of Rav Shigar's emphasis on imagination, right? imagination is typically associated with fantasy. Um, Rav Shigar does not want religious life to be just like these fantasies of what, the way we want things to be rather than the way things actually are. Uh, and much of contemporary you know, New Age spirituality or even neo Hasidut is built on fantasies, like on nostalgia, on this imaginary wholeness that one can achieve and experience. Um, and Rav Shigar has a deep skepticism about those ideas, even though he also, you know, yearn, yearns, uh, yearns for them. I think in particular, when he uses mysticism in a way that I resonate with, it's, again, the ability to think contradiction. It's the ability to think dialectic. It's the ability to recognize there are limits to reason, and yet we often find ourselves operating beyond those limits of, of reason. Meaning, the simple fact that we are religious and we do things that are religious, we act in certain ways that like 90% of the time can't be justified, right? Like in any kind of purely rational sense. So if you're able to sit with that awareness and live in that space in which I do things that are true and real, but I can never fully explain, from Shagar, that in a certain sense is like the opening to mystical consciousness, right? And to be able to hold that space is very, very important for Shigar. And the term mysticism becomes one in which we can use to help us hold that, that space, uh, especially at a time when, again, religious thinking is always has to be justified and rational makes sense and have a purpose that everybody can be explained to. And I'm not even talking rational in the scientific sense. I mean, just rational in the sense that like, oh no, we do this because it has all these outcomes and it's important. I mean, no, we just do this because we do this, right? That that's a realization that we have to be able to live with as 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 Jews, and it's one that um, it's often very hard. But mysticism, that kind of language, helps us move closer in that direction at times. I agree also with the word contradiction, and add that contradiction is not necessarily contradiction on the same level; it can be complementary. And the opening up to whether postmodern awareness or science fiction was ways of saying one can see things differently. One can imagine different ways of seeing things. 
which are possible, which are different. And of course, certainly he was against anything false, anything sham, anything fake, anything shallow or superficial. These were things which he, he taught us nonstop, you know, the quest for authenticity, which was the kernel of many Hasidic teachers, especially the school of Pshischa and Kotsk. This quest that things have to be real and authentic and not just imaginary, as Rabbi Tuba pointed out. That's all very interesting, and it kind of leads us directly into talking about his specific ideas, the ideas that he promulgated. So I'll ask both of you, given that he, or I'm not going to say he published many books in his lifetime. Now, there's a library of books that have been published after he passed away. But what topics or teachings do each of you find, I'll either say most compelling or most important for the world we live in now? Obviously, this could be a conversation on its own that could take several hours, but just maybe an outline of a couple ideas that you find very, very important. Rabbi Trubov, why don't we start with you? Sure. So one of the things I really, really appreciate about Rav Shagar's writings is that he follows what is referred to in contemporary philosophy as the linguistic turn. In the early part of the 20th century, philosophy, and, and not just in philosophy, but in other disciplines as well, anthropology, sociology, made a turn towards recognizing that if we want to examine human existence, human purpose, human meaning, um, we have to primarily focus on language and recognize that language is the way in which human beings structure meaning and purpose and, and their understanding of the world. Um, and that oftentimes, while we want to focus on things that are sort of out there, and by out there I mean like the world around us, um, that can actually be a distraction from the fact that it's, a, that it's language that is actually shaping our understanding and perspective of, of, of what, is, what is out there. And what Roshagar grasped is the way in which Jewish thought, and specifically Kabbalah and Hasidut, see language as so central to our religious thinking, um, that the words that we use and how we use them um, are of profound, profound you know, importance. Um, and again, there's a tremendous amount of 20th century philosophy that you know, touches upon this. What was so important for Rav Shigar is that the shift to language means that we are moving away from thinking about truth purely in terms of what they call the correspondence theory, meaning that something is only true if it can be verified empirically, like in reality. Let's refer to something out there in the world um, that exists in order to be, to be true. And the turn to language helps us move beyond that, at least somewhat, because again, a lot of what we say, a lot of the meaning that we construct with language isn't something that is automatically verifiable uh, or corresponds with something so obvious, yet at the same time is as real as, as could possibly uh, be. So his, his turn to language and the focus on language and the way that language shapes our religious reality, um, I think is very profound and, and important. It helps us move beyond certain questions about you know, history and, and, and objectivity that are, that, are, that, that, that are traps on a certain level. The other thing I'll, I'll share that goes sort of hand in hand with that, that Rav Shigar also develops very carefully, and again, very much drawing on Kabbalah and Hasidut, uh, is the idea of Brit, uh, the idea of, of covenant. Um, that what defines who we are is the way we are bound to other things, other people, um, and ultimately to God and, and to Torah, right? To be in a covenant uh, means that you have a relationship with something um, in which you don't know where you end and the other begins. Um, and it always comes with commitments. It always comes with commitments that, uh, you know, bound who you are and, and, and what you do. And Rav Shigar, you know, thoroughly explored the idea of covenant particularly in our relationship to Torah, relationship to mitzvot, uh, and relationship to God and relationship to our, our very Jewishness. Um, and I find that, again, that, that type of language profound and meaningful because on a certain level, it gets at the way that we all experience the world, right? We're not 
rational beings that assess the truth value of options and then choose which one is going to best achieve specific results that we want. Right? We do that some of the time. We don't do that a lot of the time. Right. But we live our lives according to the commitments that bind us uh, and that provide meaning for us and that are there, whether we like it or not, and that are often inescapable. Right. One of the things I know Rob Engelman is, a, is an analyst. Right. You could argue that psychoanalysis is in many ways a, uh, a methodology of breach. It's about discovering the breaks that you have and it's about learning how to make a real breach um, in real time. Um, and to me, that is, you know, the heart of, of, of what it means to be, to be a Jew. And I was a shul rabbi for a decade. And when I think of the issues and the questions and the dilemmas that I dealt with, right, it, it almost always, you know, distilled down to, you know, questions of, of breeds. Like, what are we committed to? Um, what is defining us? What is driving us? Who are the people who are on the recipients of our commitments? Who are the people that when they call, we feel we have to answer, right? These, the, these are the, the, the questions that, uh, the issues that the idea of breed gets at. And, for me, they're fundamental to what it means to be a Jew. And I, I'm so grateful for Shagar for helping me really, really see that. I love and agree with what you said. And you mentioned how to make a real bit. And I'd also add possibly how to make a bit real. My, my feeling is, and I suspect you've read a lot more of Shagar uh, than I have, is that for Rav Shagar, Brit's covenant is a prime concept. It's not something which is a corollary of something else, which is an expression of something beforehand. It's actually what itself is, and thus doesn't demand justification from the outside. In that way, I think he was offering a solution for many young people, or many no young people, who ask themselves, how does one live a true, authentic Jewish life with the contradictions which are raised by Bible criticism, by Talmud criticism, by philosophical thinking, and all the questions which are very relevant. So he uh, disagreed, and I think quite uh, strictly, with thinkers such as uh, Leibovitz, Goldman, others, who he felt were allowing a certain schism between two lives, between a life which is uh, the academic life and the academic thinking and their Jewish life, which could have been something completely separate. He wasn't prepared to, I think, tolerate because he felt there's going to be something false there if you leave that. And it has to be explained in different terms in which a person can live a, a type of as much as possible harmonious life and a life which is authentic and not pretending in any, any ways. So I think that concept of Brit was very central in, in expressing that possibility and expressing the possibility of transcending. I would say it's the most important concept of Shigar because almost every other concept can be found within it in one form or another in, in a lot of ways. I feel you know strongly about that. Okay, then that leads me to a question. You both talk about truth and you've almost contradicted yourselves in a way which probably Rav Shigar would appreciate because on the one hand, Rav Engelman, you said that he was not interested in something that's imaginary and therefore not true, fictional. He wants truth and he cared deeply about truth. And at the same time, Rav Trubaf, you just mentioned how he was moving away from perhaps the correspondence theory of truth. I want to ask you what he meant by truth. What did truth mean for Rav Shigar? It's a, it's a very good question. I, look, there are different ways to conceptualize it. There's the sort of existential notion of truth, um, which is a truth of, of, as Robert Engelman was mentioning, about authenticity, right? Those things that I feel because I know them in my kishkas to be true, because they're the things that are the guiding principles of my life, and I live them, you know, every day. Um, that's one way to, to think about truth. But there's a, a little bit more of a, of a post-structuralist or psychoanalytic dimension of truth that he gets at, which is not so much the things I know that are true because I feel them in my kishkas and they represent the authentic version of myself. Um, there's another dimension of truth, which for Rav Shigar is that which is like we can't escape. 
Meaning there are things about ourselves and our relationships to others, our relationship to Torah, about the way we experience God in our lives um, that we just can't escape. It's not about us, right? And that there's a, a dimension of truth that we have to internalize um, that is about that which is inextricable and inescapable for us, right? The things that we can't abandon, um, whether we'd like to or not, right? The things that, again, we're willing to die for, or perhaps maybe even more importantly, that we're willing to live for, that we're willing to give up everything to live and ensure, and, and, and make sure that they can uh, endure. Um, but once we're in the plane of either of those things, right, the existential truth is sort of the, the, um, the more, you know, psychoanalytic truth, um, you know, we are well beyond the way in which truth, the word truth is often bandied about uh, in contemporary, you know, society. And it's, it's a problem because what Shigar is trying to articulate is a way to operate that is fundamentally different than the kind of discourse we will use in academia, in the workplace, or even in the synagogue a lot of the time. Um, and it takes real work to make a space for that kind of language, right? We don't, we want to talk about things that are, you know, again, either rationally proven or instrumental, like they, 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 they allow me to achieve certain things in reality, right? Rav Shigar is saying, no, 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 like deep down, like the truths that per, per ultimately fill your life with meaning are never going to so easily fall into either of those categories of being justifiable or, ah, because they get you X, Y, and Z. It, it, the, the things that matter most to us, again, Torah, God, our, our, our spouses, our children, right? These are things that go, live in a world far beyond like the correspondence theory of truth. I'm reminded of a story of Simcha Bunim of Shisre, if I'm not mistaken, that once they were talking, it's Hasidim were talking about some very renowned Admor Rebbe who was very uh, profound and knowledgeable in Kabbalah. And Rav Simcha Bunim made a face, shrug. They said, what do you mean? You know, he knows so much. He said, he wasn't there. In other words, there's something about being there which one can discern or not discern, and one is liable to, to say this about others without knowing, but just as someone could give a very learned uh, lecture about New Zealand, about sociology, anthropology, history, politics, etc., and someone will say he hasn't been there, meaning even if he's traveled there, he hasn't sensed the essence so this sense of someone being there, not being there, runs to a line through many Hasidic texts, whether it's Rav Nachman, which Rav Nachman, where Rav Shagal learned a lot of others, and the awareness that it has to be something very uh, true, and it connects to the, the, the term which is very common and very justifiably popular in psychology, which is a true self. It's a term coined by Winnicott, but many other psychiatrists expressed it in various ways. In other words, a person having a true self or full self. Now, uh, Rav Shagal had great admiration for various rabbis and teachers, and he didn't badmouth others, but through his expression and his admiration for what certain people in various ways, you could sense what you would admire, what you wouldn't admire. And it certainly was something demanding of someone, of his Talmudim, something very, to be, you know, a certain, I'd say, very basic honesty and true, not fooling oneself, not playing games. For so many people, orthodoxy is a type of game which they've grown up into where they start playing, they get engaged in, it really engrosses them. But this can be very, uh, uh, and something which of course in psychoanalysis one wants patients to develop a more true self. And it occurs to another term of a thinker who Rav Shagal also uh, loved, Wittgenstein, for whom the question, the central question almost in anything was truth and seriousness. Now as everybody knew of Shagal, knew him as a very serious person. It doesn't mean he couldn't laugh, but he was a very serious person. When you went to talk to him, you weren't there to waste time. And 
it wasn't just a matter of time, of course. It's a certain seriousness and the question in everything and anything will be whether it's even a, a doing a mitzvah or, or something contrary to that, but are you doing it with seriousness? Are you playing around with this serious, something which a person can stand by their actions in a, in a deep and profound way? And I think everybody who met Rav Shagar knew that he was demanding of those who learned by him, who knew him, a very profound seriousness. In your descriptions of Rav Shagar's attitudes towards truth and the correspondence theory of truth, etc., and perhaps I'm wrong in saying this, please tell me, it's just I'm throwing this out as a possibility. It sounds like Rav Shagar was moving away even more than previous thinkers had already from the style of thinking of medieval philosophers like the Rambam and Moronavuchim. That sort of understanding of Judaism as a philosophical system, at least from what you're saying right now, it sounds like Rav Shagar really had a completely different understanding of what the role of Torah slash truth is in our way of thinking. I'm not trying to say that he argued against the Rambam. I just mean that he perhaps moved in a different direction. Is that accurate? I don't think it was moving away so much as rereading them. In other words, he wasn't moving away and he taught Moana Buchim or Mahaval or other Alba and various thinkers all along, but he was reading them in a different way than they had been read before. Reading them with all the wealth and breadth and depth of modern thinking, of postmodern thinking, of existential thinking or psychoanalytical thinking. In other words, it's not moving away from this so much as saying these people are also saying things which may sometimes, not always, concur with the ways he was seeing things in general. I'll say this about the Rambam. The Rambam believes uh, that knowledge and faith can be proven. The Rambam doesn't only believe knowledge and faith can be proven, he believes that knowledge and faith is only worth something if it can be proven, right? So. That's not necessarily the framework in which we operate. Certainly, you know, after Kant, you know, the idea that we can prove an infinite God is, is a very hard claim to, uh, uh, to make. But at the same time, the Rambam is maybe more, maybe more so than any other medieval or even early modern thinker, is also aware of the limits of reason and also aware that when it comes to God, right, God exists beyond language, right? God exists beyond sort of the way in which our normal conceptual thinking functions, which means that Rambam at the same time thinks everything does think things need to be proven, but is also saying God exists to a certain extent beyond proof, right? That's the problem, right? That's the dialectic in the Rambam. And I think Rav Shigar is, is very sensitive to that. Um, and in that sense, he's able to find aspects within all, all Jewish thinkers, um, sometimes reading them against the grain, sometimes reading them as they maybe intended, but either way, to show how it's all Torah and it's all, you know, in dialogue with each other. Like, it's almost rare, if not impossible, for him to find a thinker where he doesn't see the Torah within them, even if there's a lot that he disagrees with. Um, assuming it's not an overly ideological discourse. I think what Shagar doesn't want uh, or has a real hard time with is thinkers who, again, think that there's a simple narrative that can be put out there and that captures the totality of things, right? Part of what makes the Rambam such an incredible, amazing thinker is that it's a guide for the perplexed, right? To be perplexed for the Rambam means to be caught between the truths of philosophy and Torah. That's literally the definition of being perplexed. And the whole book is to go back and forth between trying to alleviate contradiction, not always so clear that we actually do it. Uh, and that's, that again, makes the Rambam a thinker who's so worth uh, exploring. Um, but I think Rav Shigar has a hard time. And he is critical, for example, of some of the students of Rav Cook who present a very you know, ideological, one-dimensional, narrow religious vision, which they claim provides, you know, all the answers. Uh, and it's just a question of lining up and, you know, 
saying, please, let me, let, me, let me do this. And I think it's very hard for him to see the Torah in that, because again, for I think those of us who see ourselves as students of Rav Shigar, that's, that's not really what Torah is at all, like that kind of approach. And um, unfortunately, in times of crisis and transition and difficulty, simple answers that offer themselves as providing wide ranging solutions are very, very appealing. Um, and, and we're all kind of pulled that way, uh, even, us that are, even those of us that are sensitive to this. Um, and I think, you know, Rav Shigar would always, you know, trying to be pushing us to, you know, recognize there's other layers here, other factors that we have to take into consideration. Uh, last point I'll make, there's an, in the more recent book, Briti Shalom, there is a dialogue in this book with uh, Rav Medan during the second intifada. Rav Medan is the Rosh Hashiva of Gush, who wasn't Rosh Hashiva at the time. And Rav Shigar takes a surprisingly... Um, I don't know, it's not critical, but like complex perspective to the Second Intifada and what is happening and what is the Israeli response to it. It's not necessarily like he's embracing um, you know, the uh, Palestinian struggle, but at the same time, he is seeing a lot of complexity in it. Um, and he is sharing that directly with Rav Maidan at a time when you'd think like Israelis are dying in suicide bombings. Like there's only one answer, right? Like defend, you know, we know who the enemy is. We have to, you know, rally the troops. We have to realize the suffering. And even there, in that moment, uh, Rav Shigar is willing to show that there's contradiction. And I found that very profound and courageous. I mean, maybe it wasn't in the context. I don't know the context well enough the dialogue took place. But in the second Intifada, it was a very difficult time. And to see him try to bring that level of complexity to it was, uh, you know, it was inspiring to me. Even if I don't agree what he said, just the willingness to do that in that context. And we, we need leaders who can do that for us. I just said that during the second Intifada, he was driving to and from yeshiva, uh, which is yeshiva, is just next to Bethlehem, which is just to Bethlehem, and he was certainly afraid, uh, as people who traveled with him would, would evidence, he was certainly afraid of being hit once he was, his car was stoned on the way to teaching in the yeshiva of Rav Meidan. It wasn't as if he was outside of this uh, conflict. He himself was suffering it, was afraid of consequences, and yet he was able, as you say, to see this complex in a complex way and not a single way. There's one piece we haven't mentioned, and I, I do want to just highlight it because it's important for me. You know, Rav Shigar's experience during the Yom Kippur War, and, and, I, and I say this because he wrote about it. He made it in some ways a cornerstone of his, of his thought. Um, th that whole episode in his life is very foundational for a variety of reasons. And not just for him, clearly he sees it as symbolic. The rupture that took place during the Yom Kippur War is not just in his own life, but symbolic of Zionism and Israel as a whole. He is sent uh, to the front on the second day of the war. And again, Israelis had no idea what was going on during the Yom Kippur War. Everything came out of nowhere. There wasn't mass communication. It was Yom Kippur. Uh, people didn't know how dire things were. Only in recent years has there been a full accounting of how terrible it was. Uh, Rav Shigar was sent to the front on like the second or third day uh, up to the Syrian front. His, he was a part of a tank unit. He was, went right to the front of the Battle of Nafah. His tank was hit. Uh, it was hit by rocket fire. He managed to throw himself free of the tank. His two friends who were in the tank died, people he knew well from yeshiva. Um, um, and so they're, they're what happened, their loss um, and his trauma was, you know, touched him on a profound level. Uh, ironically, maybe ironically, he went to the sort of, went to the off the battle uh, and was actually rescued later that day from Rav Maidan, um, of all people. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that trauma was foundational because what it showed Rav Shigar, he writes about this, is that there's never going to be easy and obvious answers for the most difficult questions that we, that we face, questions about faith, questions about God's justice, questions about redemption, that we're going to have to live with, again, contradiction and rupture and, and a lack of understanding, but that doesn't need to negate our faith 
um, it can actually open up the possibility um, to a faith that's maybe in some ways, uh, you know, more real. And to Rabbi Engelman's point, uh, Shigar, I think it's, I can say this, he had PTSD from his experiences during the Yom Kippur War. This is what I've been told. And there were incidents during the Second Intifada when there were stones thrown at his car. Um, and he was, it, this wasn't just like the, the, the fear or the terror of, of that. He, he carried it all with him. So when he's talking about these issues, it wasn't just, you know, a, a theory or just this is what we're experiencing now. They touched on, you know, the deepest part for him. And he took them, you know, very, very, very seriously. I remember uh, a drasha I was giving on, I think it was a Friday night in Shivata Kotel, a piece which I think maybe has appeared in one of his books, but he started off a certain paragraph saying, the grass is very green next to the burnt out tank. And he was describing himself lying next to the burnt out tank and yet seeing the beauty of the green grass growing there. And as Rabbi Trubov said, trauma, and especially from a psychoanalytical point of view, trauma is a very central theme. Many theorists say every one of us has experienced trauma in early infancy at the age of one or two or three, but traumas we aren't aware of and often they remain buried deep down. And some people, unfortunately, and some would say even fortunately, have had things which re-arouse the very basic trauma, which is prior to the trauma which possibly can cause PTSD. I'd, I'd be very hesitant to use the word because often it has very ramif many ramifications. It can be severe, it can be light, it can be a person having flashbacks once every few years under that category, or some people were totally uh, unable to relate. And certainly Rav Shagal was able to relate, and certainly he spoke about the trauma. But the trauma is sometimes something which makes a person very real. And, and often the trauma, the deep trauma, makes and forces a person to discover what, for lack of any better word, I'd say, uh, discover the, the monster in ourselves, discover various parts of ourselves. Meeting one's Yetzirah isn't the facile meeting one's desire to eat more or to have more sex or more honor or more money or fame or things like that. It's meeting something far more intrinsic and deep in ourselves without which a person, well, I'd, I'd question if a person could really call themselves a Tzelem Elohim if they haven't met these parts of ourselves, which trauma actually does raise in ourselves. And Rav Shagar was certainly someone who uh, faced and spoke about those things and, and was prepared to bring them to the fore also. I just want to raise one, one, one more point that uh, if I had to sort of define a relationship between, for Rav Shagar between trauma and this other idea we've been talking about, which that of Brit, one thing I think we have to understand is Israeli society and its history has been marked by trauma, but it's also been marked by a desire to sort of, you know, bury the trauma in the closet or under the rug, right? Because it's happening so often, right? Whether it's in the army or whether it's in terror attacks or a million, you know, comes at us from all sorts of directions. The, the challenge is that so much of this sort of ideology and superficial thinking that gets thrown out there is in many ways an attempt to sort of keep the trauma away, right? Because when trauma rears its head, and I'm sure I was very open about this, it prevents the possibility of any kind of final answer, right? Because trauma never really leaves you, that, that, that sort of black hole of trauma that one carries with you eludes the possibility of being able to give a final answer to make it go away. That's what trauma does. It persists in, in one form or, or another. And I think for Rav Shigar, the idea of Brit, the idea of covenant, he doesn't say this, but I'm going to say this. Um, for him, the idea of Brit is that which survives after trauma, right? Trauma tends to negate things and take things away, right? Uh, Brit is the idea that said there's something that remains. Uh, there's always something that remains. Uh, and I think that is very important to him and, and important for all of us 
because we are going to encounter contradictions and disruptions and ruptures. Um, and the question is always like, do we just hide and try to find whatever we can to protect ourselves or recognize that there's always something that persists after that, even after we've lost things. Um, and that is what Breed, you know, enables for us. And I think, uh, you know, that that is something that Israeli society as a whole, you know, needs to grapple with uh, in many ways is that um, how do we deal with the fact that these traumas are real and they do in certain ways negate the truths that we think about ourselves. But on the other hand, there's always that which continues, right? The Jewish people have always continued. That's that's what we do throughout many traumas and more uh, because Breed enables that. So if I may, Rabbi Scott, I'd just like to reiterate what Rabbi Trubov said, because I so love that expression, that Brit is something which, you know, remains through and after and survives the trauma. And just to reiterate something you were saying, in the first years of the first decades of the Israeli state, and I, I came to Israel as a child in, still in the first, uh, I'd say, um, 25 years of the state, uh, there was a narrative going on, as you say, there was uh, ideologies, and it facilitated society in one way or another with all the differences with the right and left, etc. But there was a certain common narrative which held things together until, as you say, things were quite shattered by the Yom Kippur War in various ways. And then what does one create after one's prepared to meet the trauma? And one's talking also the trauma of the Holocaust, which Rav Shagar's parents went through and was denied or was pushed aside, was covered up by various you know, narratives and ideologies in building a state. And so in those years in which Rav Shagar was at that point of turning point, he was prepared to look further, as you were saying, and talk about what survives these various traumas. I think you stated it beautifully. And, and again, his life was marked by the Yom Kippur. But his parents were Holocaust survivors. The Yom Kippur War as a young adult. And then the final trauma of the Hitnat Kut and his own illness, right? And again, I wasn't there for Rav Shagar, with Rav Shagar during the Hitnat Kut or, even, or his own illness, but he was always oriented towards how that there's something that remains, right? That the Hitnat Kut is not, is not the end of religious Zionism, um, but it has to- You're referring us to the withdrawal from Gaza. Yes, it, but it forces us to have to rethink religious Zionism. And even Rav Shagar's own illness is not the fundamental end of what it means for him as a human being, right? Like, as it says about Sadiqim, Rav Engelman called Rav Shagar Sadiq, and, and I do think he is that, right? That they're, right? Their lips, you know, continue to move in their, in their, in their graves through their Torah, right? So, and I think Rav Shagar showed even from what I've seen through the suffering of his illness, that that did not take away who he was and, and what he believed and, and what he lived for. Um, and I think if, if one thing we can learn from Rav Shagar is exactly that, how, it, how we can continue in the face of things that seem like they would make us want to, you know, cover our ears, bury our heads in the sand and say that's the end. Certainly so. When I use the word Sadiq, and to the end of his life, he was trying in his way to facilitate creation of a better society or bring about Gula. And he said that in so many words that he wanted to bring Gula. He was intent on that, not in a grandiose way, but as part of this effort, which everybody uh, is part of, or hopefully is part of. And, and together with that, when I say the word Sadiq, I'd say that what I mean by that is not only, but also that a Sadiq is someone who can't be compared to other people. A Sadiq is someone who creates his own ethics. Morals are something given, but a Sadiq implies that someone who's created his own ethics. And Shagawa was certainly creating his own ethics and in the hope not just of teaching others his ethics, but rather facilitating people creating their own ethics, which is something which every one of us needs to do. You've both been speaking about the Yom Kippur War and Rav Shagar's attitude towards religious Zionism in a general way. So I'd like to ask about it more specifically now, if that's okay. I'd like to know what was 
his general attitude towards the religious Zionist world? Was it in line with the classic religious Zionist positions, either of Rav Reinus or later on the more Gush Emunim? Was it something different? And then I'll follow that up now in terms of the messages that are implicit for us regarding how he saw religious Zionism. Rav Engelman? Well, certainly he saw himself and expressed himself as someone who was part of the religious Zionist world. And he certainly was and saw himself as a Talmud of Rav Kook in various ways, not only Rav Kook, but also Rav Kook. He was also deeply connected, uh, not only in family ties and not only in ties of learning, to the Haredi world. I remember the uh, writ of one of his sons, Rav Sholem Eisen came, who was one of the big Tamil Chachom heads of the uh, Eida Haredit, and he came to honor Rav Shagar. And he said, I remember him saying in his accent, In translation, I want to tell you that Rav Shimon is a very great Talmud Chacham scholar. And he repeated that. In other words, he was firmly rooted and with ties and with connection, with affinity and with love for the Haredi world with what it expressed, for the authentic things which did exist there, together with the sham. And Together with that, he always saw himself and was part of the modern Orthodox world. And he wanted also to reform that world. And he was trying to clean it in certain ways of the ideologies, of the, of the uh, facile statements of all types of slogans, which have nothing to do with true Avodat Hashem. And, uh, uh, and so in that way, he was part of it. And he was trying to make it deeper more profound, more serious, more connected. Tefillah, prayer, has to have, be something real, not something which is done by rote. Uh, learning Torah has to be a life and death and connected to one's life, has been said here. So, and that was all part of the, of the modern Orthodox world in which he still pinned hopes of moving it forward in a direction, if not in the sole direction, which Rav Cook was pointing out too. Look, Rav Shigar grew up in the generation of those born just after the state, who now you know went on to head many of the institutions that exist today, and it was a it wasn't a group where everybody went to yeshiva and everybody went to hezer and everybody you know went on to become rabbis, which sometimes feels more common today. Uh, he was part of a select group, an elite, and you know amongst those of his generation, Rav Medan being an example of sort of the chevra, the broader chevra who we're talking about here. Rav Shigar was always highly respected. But at the same time, Rav Shagar was always somewhat on the periphery, a little bit on the margins, right? He was, for a time, Rashiva of Akotel, but he did not stay at Akotel, right? Akotel is sort of a primary institution of religious Zionism. He didn't stay there. And there's, again, because that's not exactly where he saw himself at the, at the center, per se. I think that is true also politically, because Rav Shagar was willing to recognize some of the contradictions. So there, he writes openly about the aspects of Gush Emanim that he identifies with and the aspects of it that he thinks are or, or a deep distortion of, 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 of Torah. Um, and that's the way I think he identifies with a lot of religious Zionist politics. Um, I've written about this on, in, on, on the past, and it's, it's in my book, but in, in Briti Shalom, right, he makes, again, very, very clear that he feels that Israel is caught between, again, this facile, you know, options of left and right, each one sort of presenting their simplistic answers to um, Zionism's problems. And his, his own desire to move beyond those simple dynamics of left and right. 
Um, and he's striving for that. I mean, I, I was told there was a time where he might've been affiliated with Maimad, um, though I think he also writes he has an ambivalent relationship with Maimad, doesn't really love everything about it, that he was a little bit more associated with, with the peace process, but he was also ambivalent about how, where it was going and what the consequences might be. And um, if there was one thing I can say unambiguously about Rav Shigar is the idea that, again, uh, power and violence and the assertion of Israeli sovereignty is going to be the solution to all of Zionism's problems, that Rav Shigar would have seen that as nothing more than just, you know, straight up, you know, idolatry, that it, especially when it's tinged with messianism, right? This, that through our, pow- our assertion of power and violence and our strength, right, not only are we going to solve our problems where that's the, the vehicle through which um, we will help bring redemption. I mean, I think I can say openly Rav Shigar would have said that is nothing more than a chilo Hashem. And I've, I've written about this in the past, that the fact that the political party, Tzinut Datit, uh, has the people that it has in it, uh, Smotrich and Ben Gvir, and, and the, the language they use, the ideologies they put out there. I think Rav Shigar would have, it would have hurt him quite a bit that that's the only political party today called religious Zionism is people who, who talk like that, because that's the antithesis of everything that he, that he writes about and, and taught, especially from his students, right? It, one of the things that is so impressive about his students is the way that his Torah influenced them to build bridges with those who are profoundly different, uh, whether it's with Palestinians, uh, in the territories, or whether it's with Israelis on the other side of the religious, uh, you know, spectrum, um, and uh, to try to move beyond left and right, to recognize we have to be in relationship with those that are profoundly different from us. These were animating forces, and 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 Rav Shagar's, you know, political thinking, and you know, there there's certainly the lessons that I take, and the lessons I try to teach my children that like uh, we have to be oriented towards those truths if we're going to even begin to attempt to to address the profound dilemmas that uh, Israel and Zionism and the Jewish people face. Rav Engelman, do you agree with Rav Trubaf's take on this? I have to vehemently agree. I think it's so <laughs> true. I so identify with what you're saying, that he would have seen these directions, which are racist or supremacist, which admire you know, brute force and power, which don't want to be in dialogue. He would have seen them, as you say, as Abu Dazara. And I think that the, the variety of his thought can also, as you were hinting to, alluding to, be seen through various... Talmudimah students of his, some of whom have become Rosh Yeshivas, heads of yeshiva, very well-known yeshivas. One of them is now uh, head of one of the, the educational committee of the Knesset and it heads uh, Herzog. Others who developed directions of poetry, in other words, it's his students who were some of the first who started orthodox, even yeshiva students, were men and women, writing poetry, direct, going in directions of culture and art, as some of his closest students did, which were all part of his Torah being engaged in the world in its fullness, not seeing it as an enemy so much, not seeing it just as a vehicle towards something else, but experiencing it in a religious way, whether one's doing art or writing or academia, etc. all these being part of one's grit and one's connection with Hashem and with Torah. Rabbi Trubuff, I want to ask you a question about Rav Kook. You just wrote a book entitled Torah Goes Forth from Zion, Essays on the Thought of Rav Kook and Rav Shagar. I've seen in what I've read from Rav Shagar I acknowledge what you both have said, that he saw himself as a Talmud, a student of Rav Kook, but it doesn't mean that he accepted everything that he said full stop. He understood Rav Kook as the father of religious Zionism, the father of a lot of what we're doing now. But at the same time, I believe he said, I'd like to ask you if this is accurate, I believe he thought of Rav Kook as someone whose ideas are very important, but in some ways, perhaps they don't speak to us in the same way that they spoke to people back in the 1920s and 1930s, that perhaps we need to take Rav Kook's thought and move beyond it and use it as a starting point, but not necessarily as a finishing point. Rav Trubov, is that accurate? No, I think that's definitely accurate. And 
Chagar wrote very openly a couple of articles in which he is sort of um, trying to work through his relationship with Rav Cook as a father figure. Rav Cook is the father of religious Zionism. And for Rav Chagar, that term father carries a great weight and significance um, because father's parents are where we draw our identity from. And to, to be a, a son means you have had a father, right? You, you have a tradition that was passed down to you from one generation uh, to the next. But as Rav Chagar is also deeply aware of, right, parent-child relationships are always fraught. And there's often what we call Oedipal dynamics there, right? There's profound conflicts. Uh, and what Rav Shagar does in, in, in his writing is argue very clearly the way in which Rav Cook's thinking is the foundation of his thought, the foundation of the religious language that he uses, but it is not the end point. Um, and that's what children do, right? Children take what their parents give them, ideally, and they bring it forward. And a good parent does not want their child to be an exact clone of who they are. There are parents who want that, unfortunately, but that's not what I, I think we all know what a good parent should want for their uh, for their children. And I think um, for Rav Shagar to be able to say Rav Cook is a father is a way of affirming that identity and that Torah, um, but also recognizing that it has to be taken forward. And like all children, he criticizes the, you know, Rav Cook, um, the limits of his thought, and less so Rav Cook's the immediate context of his thought, but the way in which his thought continues to be used exactly as you said, as if the questions and answers that Rav Cook developed in 1918 are sufficient to answer the questions uh, and dilemmas that we face today. And what Rav Shagar says, it, it, very beautifully, he, say, he says, Rav Cook would be the first one to acknowledge that, right? Rav Cook would be the first one to recognize that Torah Shabal Peh uh, continues to move, right? Like as much as we carry it with us uh, and, uh, from the, and are still connected to the, uh, to the past. And I, I think the way that Rav Shagar na navigates that dynamic with Rav Cook is very powerful and very inspiring um, because it's so easy to see the intellectual forebearers as people we just can take from but need to separate from, right? This is, you know, Harold Bloom's anxiety of influence, right? Every great poet has to sort of kill the previous poet uh, that they're sort of uh, drawing upon. Um, that's not the Jewish approach, right? Masoret means you have a parent, you have a grandparent. You're going to be a parent and you're going to have to pass it on to, uh, uh, to children. Um, again, Rav Shagar's concern is when it becomes a superficial ideology disconnected from reality and when it leads to, you know, the kind of thinking that is deeply unethical towards the, towards the other. The last thing I'll say is that if there's an engine of Rav Cook's thought, it is the belief in, in redemption and Geula. Uh, and Rav Shagar is very clear that there is no religious Zionism without um, some sort of messianic spirit, spirit animating it. And I think that's very important. Because again, that could be the moment where you walk away from the tradition, so to speak, right? But he's saying, no, no, no. Like, I can't be a son to Rav Cook if I excise that out of the Torah. Um, and so much of his later thinking, is, especially after the disengagement from Gaza, is what, is, what does redemption still mean? How can it still be an animating force in religious Zionism without inexorably moving us towards, you know, violence um, and further and further and knowing exactly what's going to happen next and further, further suffering? When Rabbi Tuov mentioned the messianic spirit, which is inspiring it, I think that's an, a, an appropriate and exact way of describing it. In other words, it's not like awaiting for Messiah in the same way that maybe various Hasidic groups or other groups believe. We're just waiting for Messiah to come so much as trying to connect to the Messianic spirit, which inspires, which gives life, which vitalizes thought. In other words, the thought moving towards something which is already inside of it. It's a deeper connection. The Messianic spirit, not as something which is extraneous to us or transcendental to us, so much as something which is in ourselves, which is in the world, and that needs to 
move things forward. That needs to be a powerful force. So I think it definitely is connecting to the Messianic spirit. And I think part of that, and I'm no expert in Rav Cook's thought, but I'm certain that Rav Cook didn't want people to go around quoting him so much as showing them a way of thinking which will inspire them to have their own ways of thinking. And Rav Shagar was certainly doing that, being inspired by a certain geist, a certain spirit, but obviously thinking further as children should do with their parents' thought. So I'll just add one other point, is that in Rav Shagar's later books that were published in his lifetime, right before, he, and even the final letter before he passed away that was written for his students, he signs off um, Tzipiali Yeshua, right? That there's this anticipation of redemption. Um, and anticipation, as Rav Engelman pointed out, has two meanings. It can mean to, to anticipate can mean to look forward to something that will happen, but anticipate can also mean to make that a future present, meaning to, to anticipate it means to already act as if it's already here, uh, and those dimensions are always have always been part of um, uh, Jewish messianism. Um, for Rav Shagar, the ability to anticipate it, not just in the future, but in the here and now, what he helps show us is how that can look for religious Zionism without it immediately being connected to questions of what hill are we settling, who's in charge of what, and who's, who's really you know, in charge. Um, to help us think through messianic anticipation uh, in a different way is, is a profound contribution that is without giving it up. It's very easy just to give it up and say, okay, we've got a secular state, got to make the best with what we do, with what we have. Rav Shagar says, if we do that, we're not religious Zionists anymore. And his willingness to hold on to that, that's part of his brief with religious Zionism. That's what remains after everything, right? We, we don't give that up. That is who we are. And these weren't just words. I remember being with the, some other students of his at his bedside. It must have been probably about two months before he passed away. And he said, peers are feeling better and worse. And in response to something which someone said, he said with great passion and force, you don't understand. I'm wanting, I want to bring the Gulan. He wasn't saying I personally, as Rav Shagar, he was saying this is the endeavor which we need to be involved in. It was a passionate cry for us to continue trying in this endeavor, which is maybe an eternal endeavor, but can't be foregone just because it's something which has no end. We don't have that much time left, and there's so much more I want to talk about. Perhaps we need to meet again at some point in the near future. But before we leave, I want to ask you a few more things. One of the aspects of his thought that I have found to be most striking is his absolute fearlessness, which both of you have alluded to and mentioned explicitly as well. He's willing to confront whatever questions are bothering people. That doesn't mean necessarily he had answers, but it means he didn't ignore the questions or pretend they didn't exist. So I want to ask you, first of all, what are some of the most controversial issues that he's willing to discuss that you saw? And second of all, in particular... You mentioned before, Rev Engelman, about his willingness to talk about academic approaches to the Torah, academic approaches to Talmud study. So did he have particular approaches to these various ideas? Well, I'll say two things. One thing, when you say your willingness to speak about things, I remember someone telling me how uh, after a class, she came to ask him a question and he didn't say anything. And she waited and he didn't say anything. And she continued waiting and thought maybe he didn't hear the question asked again. And he didn't say anything until she realized he wasn't going to say anything. In other words, he was also prepared not to say anything when he didn't think he had something which could be said. He wasn't as if he felt compelled to respond to questions. And on the other, together with that, uh, as Rabbi Trubo mentioned, he was highly respected both by people who in some ways followed him and studied by him, and also by people who detracted. He was suspected as many thinkers are, maybe should be. Radical thinking means always thinking which is challenging. I remember in one of his uh, classes, 
he said something to which one of the students said, well, that's a because of, that's heresy. And Rav Shagar very passionately banged on the table and I said, well, if I say A, I will be a heretic according to these people. If I say Y, I'll be a heretic according to other people. I prefer to be my own brand of kofir. In other words, he was obviously attacked and I don't think he was oblivious to that. But on the other hand, truth was uh, the path he was trying to follow. And so he, he was uh, uh, suspected in various ways. And I think he would have encouraged people to challenge him and ask him these questions, which is part of what a good teacher should be. A good teacher should be someone who encourages uh, uh, the questions and leaves questions. And faith, according to Rav Shagar, to my understanding, wasn't something which is there to give answers, so much as something which is to give us ability to live with the questions. Because deep, profound questions may be have no answers, but the Munah can give us the ability to live with them rather than to be distracted by them. Just to pick up on that, you know, again, one of the more foundational influences for Rav Shigar is Rabbi Nachman. And that is, you know, what you just gave over is in some ways a summary of, you know, Likuti Maharan Samach Balad, right? This idea that there are fundamental contradictions without answers. There are fundamental questions that don't have answers, um, that they are sort of written into the fabric of creation itself. Um, and at the same time, our, our initial response, that needs to be shtikada. That's the thing about uh, silence. That's the thing about Rav Shigar. You, you look at everything that he's written and even Rabbi Engelman telling you these stories, everybody's coming to talk to him. You'd think he's the kind of rabbi who wants to pontificate on everything, right? That was not Rav Shigar. Rav Shigar was in some ways a little bit more withdrawn, reserved. Very withdrawn. Uh, he would speak if he was spoken to. He would answer if he was asked. But he was not somebody who just assumed, like, I have the answers for everything. You know, just let me tell you, tell, make it all work out for you. So that ability of shtika is almost unheard of for rabbis. Like that's what we do is supposed to talk. And when people ask questions, we're supposed to have the answers right away, right? The ability for it seems soon, which is at the very heart of the contradictions of existence itself, as Rabbi Nachman teaches us, are essential for him to be able to, again, say something real. Uh, but the precondition that is to, again, to know what you, you, you don't know. But even in that place where questions don't have answers, faith can still be real. That's what Rabbi Nachman, uh, you know, Rabbi Nachman teaches us. And I think for me, again, probably one radical teaching is, is his push his pushing us to realize that faith um, does not need to be grounded in something that is rationally or objectively true. And his willingness to, to really uh, interrogate and explore the reality of faith um, from a variety of different perspectives. It's not that he's, a, it's just a leap into the absurd. It's not like, that's not what he's advocating, but what he is advocating is the recognition that there is a a dimension of it that is always going to be on some level ungrounded, even as there are there is language and Torah and mitzvot and commitments that that help fill that space. Right, there's always going to be a dimension of it that exceeds our ability to understand uh, and explain it, and we have to be deeply self-aware about that and 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 own and own up to that. The other thing I'll say too is that in my book I make this connection how in their lifetimes both Rav Cook and Rav Shigar were compared to Rebbe Mayer. Right, Rabbi Mayer, and I think it's a wonderful parallel. Rav Cook was compared to Rabbi Mayer by the uh, uh, Ger Rebbe, and Rav Shigar was actually compared to Rabbi Mayer by Rav Amital. Uh, and in both cases, it was used as both praise because Rabbi Mayer was the greatest, you know, rabbi of his generation, but also a little bit of wariness and ambivalence because, as we know, Rabbi Mayer learned from Acher, right? He learned from Elisha Ben Abuya after he became a heretic. And the Gemara makes clear in Aruvin that the ra other rabbis. The other peers of Rabbi Mayer, they couldn't really understand everything Rabbi Mayer was saying. It didn't really make sense to them. And, and that was probably why they were ambivalent about it. They didn't want to teach his teachings. 
But again, Rebbe Meir's greatest gift is, is embedded in his name, right? This Meir means to, the Gemara says this, that it means to bring light, that Rebbe Meir was able to bring light uh, to darkness. And the people who are able to do that are profoundly inspiring, but they are also radical because everybody else sees darkness. And if you're in a place where you only see darkness and somebody's screaming, they see light, right? You're probably going to think that they are crazy. Um, but if they enable you to see that light as well, then you probably are going to realize just how you know holy they are and their teachings are. Um, and again, the Gemara actually concludes that um, initially Rabbi Meir's teachings were not taught in heaven. Uh, and eventually not only were they taught, but God actually refers to Rabbi Meir as Bani, my son. He's the only rabbi who gets that, uh, that honorific. Um, so there's a sense of that, that there's a radicality to, to Rav Shagar that makes people wary and that's understandable. But I think just as Rabbi Meir's teachings became part of the Masoret, I, I firmly believe that um, you know, Rav Shagar's will as well, exactly because of that gift, you see light where others see darkness. And we absolutely, we desperately need that. Fengelman, do you want to add something to that? Well, you've given me a wonderful gift, Rabbi Trubov, in which uh, referring to his being able to be silent. I mean, that's mostly what I try to do as an analyst, listen rather than right. speak. I thought about that, yeah. So maybe in that way, I, in my very small way, I'm continuing this path. I, I'm reminded of uh, one of the earliest when he was teaching Hakotel, and some people uh, criticized Rav Shagar because of a certain, one of his many Talmudim, once a close Talmudim, who stopped keeping, uh, keeping mitzvot and stuff like that. And I remember uh, uh, one of the uh, very orthodox and traditional rabbis in yeshiva, Rabbi Feynman, saying people are seeing things from the wrong way. Without Rav Shagar, this person would have not have God anymore. And this person, even though he's not keeping mitzvot, but Rav Shagar facilitated God, God for him being far broader than any terms. And this also touches on what you were talking earlier about his interest in language. In his later years, he was... Uh, reading certain books about psychoanalysis, and he saw the aspect of the real, uh, Lacanian term as contrasted with the imagined and the symbolic, as a place where there is, as Rav Nachman implies, you know, only silence, it's not a place of words, but it is a place very, 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 very real. In other words, this Torah of Nachman in Rav Shagar's teaching, it wasn't just an historical thing that before the world there was emptiness, but before consciousness, there's unconsciousness and even that's only a start, and there's something very real, and being prepared to go into that, it's not just darkness of depression, it's darkness because there's no words and concepts, but it is a place which can transcend the various uh, dialectics. For example, you were mentioning earlier, Maimonides between philosophy and Torah, which could be an expression of uh, dialectic of, between objectivity and subjectivity, in which in various writings, again, Rav Shagar was suggesting ways of transcending it in touch with deeper levels. And of course, without depth, we're left with a very shallow uh, Judaism, a Judaism of do and don't, and this is right, and this is wrong, and ju judge judgment, rather than a place of deeper chesed and profound harmony, which allows those things to be there, but isn't just remaining on the surface as seeing people only what they do, but demanding this depth, which was, I'd say everybody who knew of Shogar was knew that they were called to death. So you both are now presenting me with the perfect opportunity to ask about religious pluralism in Rav Shagar's thought, because as you both mentioned, Rabbi Nachman Samachdal is 64, which Rav Shagar commented on. He talks there about religious pluralism. And Rav Engelman, what you just said, that God is far broader than any term. 
that obviously also leads to the question of God versus religion not being necessarily synonymous. So if you could both just comment your takes on how Rav Sagar saw religious pluralism, and I mean that in two ways. Number one, both vis-a-vis Judaism versus other religions, and also in terms of different divisions within Judaism, different movements, so to speak, within Judaism itself. What was Rav Shagar's attitude towards other religions and other religious movements in Judaism? Well, I'd like to say that within Judaism, and he was questioned about his attitude to conservative reform, he did feel, and he said this quite clearly, that the true continuation of uh, the Judaism, and he, as he placed himself as part of this orthodoxy, as part of this grit, as part of this covenant, as a continuation, he did feel that is the most authentic path as the path of Tamidei Chachamim, the path of scholars who he admired in some ways, even though he wasn't, say, someone whose main role was Posek was giving halachic decisions, but he felt this is an epitome and an example of the type of character which is developed by halacha, by observance, by being part of these rules and norms. And he didn't personally see the possibility of this developing from other paths, even though he didn't negate them as certain paths within Judaism. He didn't believe they would produce the certain, uh, the passion, the uh, depth, the breadth, the authenticity, which he felt can grow and can sprout from an orthodox path of life, a lachic path of life. And he was quite clear about that. He wasn't saying everything goes. Regards to other religions, I'd say I think it would be almost impossible for a, a true thinker to read, to be touched, to be affected by other thinkers who are not Jewish, whether they're philosophers or whether they're thinkers from the East, and he also did peruse Eastern ways of thinking, which are often defined in general terms as Buddhist, though of course that's a very generic term we're talking about Eastern ways of thinking. He really did read these things. He had respect for them. I don't think a person can have deep and true respect for other ways outside of Judaism without feeling these are also true ways of approach to God. Maybe not Jewish ways, but they are ways which people are attaining a certain touch with the real. He was aware that when he's talking about mysticism, which does infuse his writings from early years and to late years, though it does develop in various ways, he was aware that his, his thinking is maybe somewhat inspired, but certainly relates to a certain general context in which these people also had true and real experience of, of God, however one interprets God. And so he certainly was respectful of these because someone who is, is in a true path is not comparing himself. I'm not saying, am I better or am I worse? One is not on any scale of being close or less close. One is doing a certain path and trying to make it as broad and deep as possible, while one has respect for other people who are pursuing in their way, I believe. You know, I, I agree with everything Rabbi Engelman said. I, look, in many ways, Rabbi Shigar is a perfect embodiment of the Rambam saying that one must accept truth from whoever says it, right? Like, I think that very much is, he, his Torah lives that, every, you know, every, every page of it that you, uh, that you read. It doesn't mean you accept everything everybody says. You just, but when truth gets said, you, you, you got to listen very, very closely. Uh, Rav Shigar writes, and I, I think this is important, uh, again, going back to the idea of breach and covenant, that difference can only be bridged, difference can only be even made real when we are, when two people are coming together at, out of their, their, their covenantal commitments. Meaning, uh, and he writes about this in a very powerful essay on uh, tolerance and uh, zealotry, uh, that uh, he says that, he says he finds the people that are most tolerant are the people that are have the strongest sense of greed. 
Um, and that doesn't mean like they're the most fundamentalist, God forbid, right? He's, he's very clear about that. Fundamentalism is, it, he actually calls this a violation of Breit because it is so dependent on negating the other, right? The whole problem for the fundamentalists is that there's people who think differently. And the mere existence of people who think differently or live differently becomes a, a fundamental uh, philosophical and religious problem for them. And that's why the, the other has to be you know, negated because their mere existence uh, challenges their own sense of, uh, of certainty. Um, to have a covenantal truth, to be committed to something that you can't even fully explain means even if the other doesn't live those commitments, that's okay, that's not about them. Right. And in that sense, I think there's something very powerful that to live the kind of Torah and truth that Rav Shigar is talking about is in many ways a precondition for talking about talking with those who are different. If those people also maintain their own sort of covenantal you know, truths, if, 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 they, if they don't, if they're deeply ideological, if they're trying to push their ideological ideology in sort of a certain in a sort of way, then then it, it's very difficult for there to be real dialogue and difference, ultimately. Um, but covenant is what allows, uh, you know, difference to emerge because the other can be the other, right? Like this is the whole nature of the Jewish covenant, right? Non-Jews can be non-Jews. It doesn't negate the truths that Jews have, right? That's the whole point. It's not about that. It's about us and our commitments. Um, and that's how Rav Shagar sees covenant uh, writ large. I think his critique of, of what he calls not, I'll give the critique of both non-Orthodox Judaism and Orthodox Judaism. His critique of non-Orthodox Judaism is that it lacks that covenantal dimension, Right, he talks about this idea of the nikudaha kasha, right? That Rabengam was getting this hard point that animates your sense of being bound to Torah and to the religious commitments that emerge from being bound to Torah that can be manifest as a sort of sort of a neuroticism, obsessiveness, right? The sense that we are bound by halacha, the halacha commands us, um, that that is central to what it means to be in a covenantal relationship with anything is that the other commands me, the other I'm bound to them and their desires. Um, and he's concerned that if Judaism lacks that covenantal dimension, it, it's just not going to really be uh, Judaism anymore. But again, it's a subjective thing. Who are we to ever say whether somebody is, has a breed or not? Like that, that's the whole point. Like you sort of can sense it sometimes and how they react to others, but it's not something you can say, oh, you have a breed. I have a breed and you don't. So again, even when he makes these statements, he would be the first to say, I can't you know, point out who's, you know, you know, who has this or not. You know, his critique of orthodoxy is the very fact that it is orthodox. That is, it is driven by this sense of there's a correct set of beliefs and practices that everybody has to uh, get in line with. Uh, and the problem with orthodox identity is the way, again, that it is non-covenantal because it is bound by social recognition, right? The most important thing about being orthodox is that other orthodox people say you're orthodox, right? That's what defines this is an important critique, but right? this is what defines what's Asur and Mutter, right? It's not what the Torah says. It's what, it's not even whether other Orthodox Jews will say it, will say it's Asur. There's plenty of things you can do that are Asur that Orthodox Jews will say you're still Orthodox. It's the things that, again, once you do, put you outside of the recognition of that identity. Um, and that is like a profound uh, problem for, for Shigar, because then it's not about Torah, it's not about God, it's about what everybody else wants. Uh, and Rav Shigar, in some of his later writings, he talks about this aspiration for a non-orthodox orthodoxy, right? Like in basically, the orthodox is animated by breeds and not by social recognition, the need for uh, doing what everybody else conform, you know, conformity. Um, and that is orthodoxy at its worst. And unfortunately, that's part of the historical nature of orthodoxy. It is since its self-awareness as a movement of Judaism defined itself as. Like, these are the things you have to do to be in this club. Um, and it become, again, so much of that is not really about Torah at all. And, that, and that's, that's a real problem because it distorts Torah and it distorts our relationship with 
God turn the Jewish people. There's so much more I could talk about, and I have so many more questions, but we are mamash out of time. So I want to ask one final question to both of you. Rav Shagar is obviously a complicated thinker. He's not easy to understand, and his ideas can throw monkey wrench into a lot of people's belief systems because he challenges people. Do each of you think that Rav Shagar should be a primary teacher for all religious Jews, all people who aspire to be Torah Jews nowadays, or should his thought be confined to those people who already are confronted with some of the questions that he deals with? If someone isn't bothered by the challenges of postmodernism, for example, if someone is perfectly happy living a classically orthodox life as opposed to a non-orthodox orthodoxy, should that person be given Rav Shagar, or should he be told, you're good the way you are, this is for somebody who's already bothered by this? What do you think, Rav Engelman? Well, I, I think on the one hand, my answer would be yes, and on the other hand, I'm not sure if it would make a lot of difference. I, I mean, there were certain, there was lots of Talmudim who studied by Rav Shagar. Some of them became themselves or Shivot. Some of them were very uh, perturbed and moved and inspired by the questions Rav Shagar raised and the things he spoke about. And you could feel it in the ways and the paths they pursued and the books they wrote. Some of them, you felt they were aware of it, they were open to it, they appreciated it, but as onlookers, like some people maybe uh, onlookers read literature, they won't be moving them because that certain part in themselves, which can be moved, was just not so oblivious. It was appreciative and that's as far as it went. So my personal feeling would be, and of course I'm biased, that I think Rav Shagal's thinking should be part of any orthodox, certainly modern orthodox, but even orthodox syllabus. However, however, it's unlikely to tear up or rent apart asunder and disturb people who are not open to that being uh, uh, moved, just like there may be various thinkers whom psychoanalysis will not touch. Psychoanalysis is about discovering what one doesn't know about oneself. True thinking is about discovering not authorizing one's thought and finding proofs of what one already knows, so much as having those beliefs challenged. So I personally think that it can, it has the potential to enrich every person to make their orthodoxy, to make their bridge, to make their observance, to make their Judaism, whether it's uh, modern orthodox Judaism or ultra-orthodox Judaism. And there are many, many ultra-orthodox yeshiva students and others who are reading Rav Shagar's books who are inspired by them, whether on the quiet or not. And so they are moved by these things. And then the people who, it won't move them, it won't tear them apart, it won't do what it did to many people who certainly needed it like, uh, like uh, water for their thirst. So I certainly believe that it, it's good to teach it to everybody, and I don't think it will affect everybody. I very much agree with Rabbi Engelman's take. I, I will say that when the students were working on editing uh, the writings uh, to be published posthumously, they, they told me this, that they really weren't sure there was going to be an audience for them, for these writings. In Rav Shagar's lifetime, he was a somewhat known figure, but again, operated primarily on the margins. And people knew there was something interesting about his Torah, but they didn't really have quite of a grasp of what that was. Uh, so when they're working on the editing, they just don't know. Like They're going to put this out there into the world, and maybe five people will read it, and that'll be it. That'll be the end of Rav Shagar. They were honestly shocked by how much interest uh, there has been and continues to be in the Torah. I mean, for them, the the publishing was an act of faith, an act of love and an act of faith, clearly, to their Rebbe. Uh, and I, that's part of the reason I have such tremendous respect for it, because it's an, it was an act of breach, right? Like, they're out there in a place where there's just no justification, but they know this is what they have to do. I think in the Israeli context, it, it's going to have a lot more interest, uh, again, because of the language barrier that exists, you know, for English speakers. Um, for me, I often point this out, that 
Rav Shigar isn't going to go away by the simple fact that if you want somebody who has addressed core issues, religious Zionist issues, issues of faith, issues of Torah, um, in a sophisticated way, you literally have nowhere else to go. Meaning if you're a, a person that is bothered by bigger questions, you're going to have to go to thinkers from over 50 plus years ago to see what they said on it. Um, and you're not going to be that satisfied. Uh, but if you're going to look and see, well, what is somebody who's like close to my reality actually saying about this in a serious way? You're going to have no choice but to open up Rav Shigar's uh, books. Like, it's just like, you don't have an option. There's nobody else. So I think that's going to uh, prove some of his enduring uh, relevance. And when you go to Yeshivat Hezder and you look at the Mikomot, the individual places where students sit, you'll see a lot of Rav Shigar's farm. It's like, so, even in places you wouldn't typically expect it. Now, I, I don't think they're necessarily grasping everything out in them. Um, for a variety of reasons, but they are drawn to it. And I think that is, um, you know, incredibly meaningful. Uh, there are a small group of Haredi students who come to Siach to learn Roshigar's writings, even to this day. Very, very big Talmud Chachamim. One of them is like a Dayan in a Hasidic community, for example. Um, there's something about the Haredi world that sort of senses the, the sort of the Torah's emiss, Torah's Chaim of Roshigar, that in some ways the religious Zionist community, minor Orthodox community still struggles with. Uh, but I think Rabbi Engelman put it really well. For the people it speaks to, it will speak to them. And for the people that it doesn't speak to, they're just happy to kind of leave it alone. Um, and I think that's fine. Like, I, I think that's the way truth is a lot of the time. Like, uh, those who will find it will find it. And those, look, I get a little bothered when people want to denigrate Rav Shigar or say he doesn't really have anything to say or that's relevant. You know, just let truth do its thing, right? As, you know, God throws truth from heaven, it breaks into pieces, but, you know, as the, as it says there in the, the Midrash, right, from the earth, truth shall rise. And you know, sometimes you just got to let that happen. I, I see that with Rav Shigar's Torah, that the truth of it is emerging, not all in one place, not all at one time, but that's the nature of truth. Kutzker says this, right? Like, you can only bury the truth for so long before it finds its way out again, right? Like, it will. Uh, and I think if Rav Shigar's Torah is true, then that will that will continue to happen. Like, is it for everybody at all times? Should it be part of every Yeshiva at Hezder? Should everybody ever give a shear on it? That I'm not so sure about at all. Um, but if, if you find it, that it speaks to you and animates you, then you should teach it because that's the way Torah works. And, you know, my hope is that more and more people will find themselves animated by it. They'll want to learn it and find whatever part of it they could teach. I would like to add a very small comment, which I believe Rabbi Trumov would agree with. It's not just either or. In other words, Rav Shagar has books about the Yamim Noem, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. He has books about Hanukkah, about Purim, about Pesach. And these books, which are for dealing with more specific subjects, not the grand subjects of modern orthodoxy and Zionism, but specifically they have in them to enrich people who, even if they're not going to be taken with the, the gamut of his thought, but will certainly enrich their Rosh Hashanah, will certainly enrich their ideas of tshuva, their ability to do tshuva, the experience of Hanukkah and Purim. And these books can certainly inspire people and do inspire many people, even though the whole breadth and depth may be a little bit too much for them in the present. They certainly do enrich people's day-to-day -day living too. Right. And I think it's very important, you know, I, I wrote my book on Rav Shigar and, you know, that Rav Engelman teaches Rav Shigar's Torah, you know, in Hebrew to Israelis. Rabbi Nachman talks about Tzadik Elyon and Tzadik Tachton. And there's the, the role of the Tzadik Tachton. I'm not a Tzadik, but the, there has to be an intermediary between the Tzadik Elyon and their Torah and getting it out to everybody else. And I think uh, it's not just the students or it's everybody who sees themselves as potentially a student has a role in, in helping make that um, uh, possible. And I think it's really important that people who kind of are drawn to Russia and grasp sort of the, the essence of it, particularly as the Talmudim do, to make sure that they get that Torah you know, out there. One thing that they made a decision to do I'm not always totally happy with is that they've published a tremendous amount, which means it's very difficult to know where to start. 
Um, and there's more coming. I hope sooner rather than later, they will start publishing maybe selections from things that have already been published that are a little bit more accessible. Like I told them um, they should publish a Haggadah. Everybody buys a Haggadah and we could, you know, work, you know, distill it and make it more accessible. Like I think there's some work of that to be, um, you know, to be done as well. There is another volume of English translations that it's coming out in the next several months, which I think has a better selection of things that will be relevant, relevant and important. It was uh, with an introduction by uh, Professor Alan Brill, who I know Rabbi Engelman knows, uh, and my friend Rabbi Levi Morrow, who did the uh, the translation. So I think for English speakers, that's going to be an, also another important entry point into uh, Rav Shagar and his writings. And there are more Hebrew works coming out as well? Oh, yeah. There's like at least three in the next year. There's going to be a collection of Rav Shagar's Shirim on Rav Kook, which is going to be interesting. It's from his earlier years. There's a, a whole bunch of Masechta and Talmud that are still going to come out. Uh, there's one actually on Midrash that I'm actually, that one I'm looking forward to in particular, because Rav, Rav Shagar is very good with um, creative readings of Midrash. He always finds the most interesting Midrashim um, that I've never seen before. Somehow you think you've been around enough. You've seen, you've seen every interesting Midrash. Rav Shagar always finds that one I've never seen. Like, oh my God, how did I not know this? So that's another book that's coming out. There's, and there's more. I mean, there's, there's a list of these. How does Rebbe Meir learn from Acher? Right, he swallows the fruit and spits out the pit. Right, like so that that I think to a certain extent is also the way people have to approach from Shigar. Like you don't have to accept all of it. Like just find the parts that speak to your neshama and like you know dig deep into them and let them grab hold of you. Because I guarantee you, if you're open to it, you will find something like that there somewhere. That's the way. That's the way I started hearing of Shigar because at first I felt quite a lot of resistance to his ideas. And he'd be the first, I think, to say, you don't have to take it all in. Like he was very, like you, like you've, in the stories you've shared about when you go to him for advice or thinking through problems, like he's not, he did not demand that kind of submission. It, it would have been the opposite of what he wanted. And, and I think uh, his thought lends itself to find in it, you know, that which grabs holds of you. That's what's really Torah. And that's all he would have ever wanted. There's so much more we could talk about. I am very grateful to both of you. I have been someone who's read Rav Shagar's works, not all of them, of course, but someone who has been inspired by them. But I know nothing about Rav Shagar as a person. You really helped me today to put some of his thought in context, both a personal context as well as an intellectual context, and certainly a spiritual context. And my hope is, as you both indicated now, that more people will have access to Rav Shagar's thought. Perhaps this podcast can do a little bit in inspiring some listeners to pick up a book, pick up one of his ideas to talk to somebody who knew him or talk to somebody who studies his thought in order to have some of that depth added to their regular diet of Torah learning. So Rav Yoshua Engelman, Rav Zach Truboff, thank you both for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. 
whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.